Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. The Rising Tide Mastermind is one of my favorite things that I look forward to each and every week because I get to see people that have my best interest in mind. I know this because I have their best interest in mind. And when you get people together in a room like that, you can just imagine how people want to help other people. If this sounds like something you want to learn more about, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up on our knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And folks, I am so excited. I'm excited for so many reasons. One, it is just a few days away, and maybe I will see you at the International Water Conference. The International Water Conference is put on by the Engineer Society of Western Pennsylvania, and I am heading to San Antonio, Texas today to hopefully see you. And of course, I will be at the International Water Conference November 12th through 16th. And folks, I'm so excited. I am delivering the keynote address at the International Water Conference, and I hope I get to see you there. But not only do I get to do the keynote address, I get to stay the entire week, and we are partnering with the International Water Conference and Scaling Up H2O to make sure that this podcast can bring you all of the amazing things that are going on at the International Water Conference. So we're going to try to, on a future episode, immerse you into all of the neat stuff that's going on there, introduce you to some of the people that are attending the International Water Conference, and hopefully entice you that if you are not there, you need to go next year. It's one of my favorite shows to attend, and if you've ever been, you know why, and the folks at the Engineer Society of Western Pennsylvania are just so awesome to deal with. I've just really enjoyed every step of the way as we have been planning this keynote speech and all the things that the podcast is going to do at the International Water Conference show. So please, if you are listening to this podcast, and of course we air each and every Friday, that means very soon, in just a few days, the International Water Conference is going to start. Please come up and introduce yourself to me. That is my favorite thing at attending conferences like this. I love to meet people in the Scaling Up Nation. So I would love to shake your hand. I'd love to thank you for listening to this podcast. And of course, as always, if you've got an idea for some things that you want to hear on your favorite podcast, Scaling Up H2O, 
let me know that too. Now, I might not be able to take a quick note or something. I might be running off to get on stage to deliver a keynote speech. So please do not take offense to that. But what you can do is you can go to scalinguph2o.com, go over to our show ideas page, and my team will make sure that we are adding all of those ideas to our list. And as we plan each and every topic, we consider all of the things that people want us to talk about. All the people that have done that already, thank you for that. It is such a great honor to be able to talk about the things that you want us to talk about on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And of course, be at conferences like the International Water Conference, where I can meet people within the Scaling Up Nation. Well, in addition to the International Water Conference taking place next week, we also have the Clean Tech Forum North America, which is taking place in San Diego, California, January 22nd through 24th. This is where you can learn all about trends and innovation driving the ecosystem forward. We're going to have all the information you need about this show on our webpage. Of course, that's scalinguph2o.com. Another event that you might want to put on your calendar is the BOMA Water Business Meeting and National Issues Conference. That's taking place in Washington, D.C., January 28th through 31st. To find out more about this conference, of course, we're going to have that information for you on ScalingUpH2O.com on our events page. And then finally, you might want to put on your calendar February 13th through February 16th in Austin, Texas. The 2024 Water Conference is being held by the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. For all of these conferences and so much more, the fine staff at Scaling Up H2O has curated all of the conferences that we know about, and they have put them on our webpage. So you can simply go to one place, learn about every conference that we know about, and navigate directly to their page to register, and also put a calendar invite in your calendar by a click of a button so you can reserve that time to go learn something, to go meet somebody new, to go do something that enhances what you do every single day, which is being the best water treatment professional that you can be. Somebody that helps us become even better at the water treatment professionals that we are now is James McDonald. And here is a brand new installment of Periodic Water Table with James. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's Periodic Water Table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is Calcium Phosphate. How soluble is calcium phosphate? Is it more or less soluble than calcium carbonate? How could the degradation of other water treatment chemicals lead to formation of calcium phosphate in a system? How could the inclusion of phosphate-based chemistry in the incoming makeup water, such as city water, impact the formation of calcium phosphate, especially if you aren't checking for such chemistry? 
How do you clean calcium phosphate scale? What is the impact of pH and temperature on calcium phosphate scale formation? Can you predict the solubility of calcium phosphate? How do you prevent calcium phosphate scale? When would you actually want to produce calcium phosphate precipitation in a water system? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learn to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Thank you, James. Well, our guest today actually did what I request all of the people that attend the conferences that I talk about that are in the Scaling Up Nation to please come up to me and introduce yourselves. Let me know that you listen to the podcast. And our next guest did that very thing. Of course, I kind of set it up to work pretty well. We were eating lunch together and we introduced each other and she knew who I was because I get the honor of hosting this podcast each and every week. Folks, I know you're going to enjoy this interview. My lab partner today is Dr. Swati Sharma of Water Engineering Incorporated. Welcome, Swati. Thank you. Thank you, Trace. Well, you and I met, we happen to be so fortunate to be seated right next to each other at lunch at the most recent AWT technical training seminar. So how lucky was I? <laughs> I think the same goes with me as well. <laughs> I have been listening to your podcast for a long time, and um, I'm really honored that uh, I get to talk with you today and discuss a lot of different interesting topics about it today. I think we're going to cover a lot of material, specifically around wastewater. But before we get there, I'm kind of curious, how did you learn about the AWT technical training and why did you decide you wanted to go? So I come with a specialization in wastewater treatment. And uh, after I graduated with my doctoral degree, I joined Water Engineering Incorporated. Uh, we are based out of Mead, Nebraska. And uh, water engineering is a industrial water treatment company, uh, services company. So I came in as a technical wastewater consultant. I joined there. But when I got in, I saw that a majority of our services is concentrated with industrial water treatment. And that was something very new to me. And uh, although I have been here for four years now, it's going to be, it's a vast area it's a vast field so i although i went into the field did everything and you know got in touch with our technical support uh, but i think the technical training david and katie told me about and also through, i have been to awt conferences a couple of times and uh, i wanted to first go in 2020 when i joined to the technical training but the covid hit and everything was different at that time so Finally, I got a chance and I was like, okay, this is the time I should be in the technical training to, to know where I stand. I think that really helped me, the technical training, because even after three and a half years in the industry, there's a lot to learn. You cannot learn it in one day, all of it. So it was a good experience for me to know where I stand in the industrial water treatment so yeah, it was to explore the knowledge and the vast industry in few days. <laughs> 
Which one of the seminars did you attend? I attended the industrial water treatment. So you got to see me more than you bargained for because we had a speaker that wasn't able to make it and um, we had to figure out how to make that work. <laughs> no, yeah, but that was that was really good, actually, because uh, a lot of those, especially with the numericals and the other little stuff that we never think of. I mean, there is on the books, but we don't get to read the books all the time, all day, you know. So these technical trainings really helped me a lot with that because uh, small things, small brush ups like, oh, you forget that. Did I do this? Do do I do it when I do this test or not? You know, those little things really helped. Actually, it was it was really full of knowledge. I've heard several people refer to that course as drinking from a fire hose. What do you think? (laughs) I think I agree to it, I guess. (laughs) You get a little bit of water, but there's so much that you're missing. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you do things, you you do this test so many times, almost so many times a day, probably in a a month. But there's the small things that you miss. And it helps a lot when somebody, you know, put that in your mind, hey, focus on this. You know, that that's that's something I really enjoyed learning about in the trainings. I am curious, how did you get involved in the water treatment industry? So I have an engineering degree in environmental and biotechnology with a minor in chemical engineering. So when I was in India, I did a few projects in wastewater treatment, actually, my final year projects, my four, uh, so the capstone projects that they say here. So I got interested in that field because, first of all, in India, we have a ton of water resources, but not a very good, probably, water treatment facilities. So that was something that intrigued me into getting those projects uh, to, to learn about it. And when over the time when I by the end of my fourth year, when I finished it, I started looking up uh, different researches that's going on. And uh, that's how I found my advisor in in the U.S. Uh, in North Dakota State University. He was working on a similar project that I did my capstone project with. And so I contacted him and I got here and started working in water treatment. And uh, I mean, I never actually, when I grew up, I never thought that I would actually work in wastewater treatment. <laughs> but but after I came here, it's 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 a part of my life now. I, I really enjoy doing it. What does your day-to-day look like? Oh, my day-to-day, I have a four-year-old to start with. <laughs> so it the day begins with him and ends with him. But in the middle, I find myself going into field work, helping our tech services. We I also direct and manage the in-house analytical lab at uh, Water Engineering. So spending a quality time in the lab, analyzing samples, getting out in the field, you know, coming back home, spending time with family. Well, let's talk a little bit about your thesis. I make sure I get the title right. So how to estimate the best treatment conditions for sunflower oil wastewater using advanced electro-oxidation process. So why would somebody write this? And let's talk about it. Yeah. um, So when I came here for my PhD, I started with biological treatment process, actually, um, in municipal water, wastewater. 
as a year passed and when we started talking about many different uh, i started researching about the topics on municipal wastewater treatments i saw that most of the water has been pretreated through the industries first before it comes to the city plant and a lot of times these industries uh, find it hard to treat some of their wastewater on a day-to-day basis they face based on the loading or if there's some kind of a mishap happens or some accident happens and they and that comes in as a burden to the city water plant because they are not that equipped to treat as specifically to some of the problems so my research got a little diverted and i was like okay wait i I probably have to start where it started. So I went back and went into the industrial wastewater treatment side and started talking with different industries back in Fargo. And I talked with them. I found like, what are the issues that they're finding in their plans from day to day? Like, you know, they they have already a wastewater treatment plan set up, but what are the issues that they are thinking of could be improved or enhanced? And that's how I got into the research on oil refinery, edible oil refinery. And I also worked on a sugar beet plant. So where they make sugars actually from sugar beet. So there are lots of fatty acids there. Is there something particular about sunflower oil? So sunflower oil or uh, canola oil, you take any kind of oil, actually. So my research was on not only on sunflower, it, it is a part of the study in the PhD, but uh, I did in uh, two different oils. And I would say it's not very different in terms of the organics. It's a high loading of organics. It's a high loading of FOG and phenolic substances, uh, other inorganic substances, fatty acids, as you see, because sunflower all of those organic components come from the process of seedling to the oil extraction. So the whole process itself contributes a lot of organic acids, and which is really hard uh, sometimes to do it through the traditional method. Uh, generally, if you see, an oil refinery will go through the process of a pretreatment and uh, using chemical coagulation. And then it would be going through a dissolved air flotation. And finally, it goes to goes through a microbial process of treatment. But the problem with these particular traditional methods is, first of all, chemical coagulation is an additive process. So it adds a lot of chemicals into your water. So it also produces a huge volume of sludge. And this sludge becomes hazardous because you have already added chemicals to it you know and while desludging uh dewatering the sludge it's a huge consumption of water first second it's a huge operation cost and secondly the disposable disposal of this waste is a big issue right now so these are the three things that really contribute on top of that the whole treatment chain itself is a operationally expensive process, whereas the return on investment is very low, you know, and uh, that's also one of the reasons where, you know, wastewater, they 
the industries, they don't really want to think about much until and unless they have a violation or they are not meeting the discharge permit permits uh, because they don't see any monetary gain from the whole process itself. But if we see it from other perspective, if, if we can think of a different process, an alternative process like an electrocoagulation, it doesn't need a lot of space. It's a compact treatment process. It does not have any fouling issues. Comparatively, it's less sludge generation. So you 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 save a lot of money in disposing this or dewatering or taking care of this sludge. And since it's a oxidation process, it does not have any hazardous byproducts. So it can be easily the sludge that is formed from this process can be easily moved to land application, fertilization, or even you can sell it as a fuel to it. So you dealt a lot with the electro-oxidation process. There are a lot of different ways to slice that up. Can you explain what the different processes are and what the differences are? Yes. Uh, so all of these, like electrocoagulation, I mainly work on electrocoagulation, electro-oxidation, and electrochemical peroxidation. So these three are three different ways of oxidation process, but the mechanism itself is a little different. So if I want to give a gist of it, electrocoagulation is where the anode gets oxidized. And in terms of, if I, if I speak particularly about the oily wastewater, it works on the emulsi- emulsification. So it demulsifies, destabilizes the oil from the water and separate it. So you get colloidal substances because of the oxidization of the anode. And at the same time, the cathode that you are using here will act as a flotation device. So in chemical coagulation, if you compare it to a chemical coagulation process, you mix the chemicals, the coagulants and the flocculants, and then you let it run for some time until it, you know, produce the pin flocks that we say, right? And then you move it through a DAF. So you're using two different equipments to get this whole thing, whereas in electrocoagulation, it's done in the same device. It's it's done in the same equipment where the anode is doing the pin flocks, and the cathode metal electrode will actually use uh, give air bubbles, which will make the clogs to float up. So that's electrocoagulation. Now, if we go for electrooxidation, the difference here is it's an oxidation process where instead of creating sludge in the electrocoagulation system, this electrooxidation will convert your components to carbon dioxide and hydrogen molecules. So it is an environment-friendly process compared to EC. And there are also differences about is electrocoagulation is more effective in suspended particulate contaminants, whereas electrooxidation is more effective in organic dissolved solubles. And when it comes to electrochemical peroxidation, this is called as a Fenton's chemistry, it, where we use iron and hydrogen peroxide for the oxidation process. So it sounds like it's a smaller footprint and there's a lot less waste, which is normally one of the largest costs that the customer has. 
What about the actual water discharge quality? How has that changed? So the water discharge quality is really good in terms of that. Uh, when we are focusing on chemical coagulation, I'm I'm comparing it with the chemical co- coagulation all the time because this is what we use most of the time and it's easier for us to, you know, relate to it. So in chemical coagulation, when we do, not all chemicals can do all sorts of removal, right? So we use different chemicals for different kind of removal if we are using, if we want to do maybe um, organic removal, we are using ferric chloride or PAC, ACH. Whereas if you're if you want to use for uh, heavy metals removal, we are again using something different. So for each kind of removal in chemical coagulation, you are using different kind of chemicals and you are actually adding different chemicals. But in electrocoagulation or oxidation process, microbial contamination, inorganic contamination, organic contamination, heavy metals, all this can be done with the same process itself without any addition of chemicals. So it's just one process, many removals. So it's it's a versatile process to use for. When you started to write your paper, what was your hypothesis? And then how did that change when you got all your data? That was actually interesting because I, I did three different types of wastewaters, an oily wastewater that was canola and the sunflower, and the other one was sugar beet. When I first started in the first year, I was totally clueless about what to start, how to do it. So read lots of papers, which I'm sure anyone doing a research would do. And I thought, okay, I have three different, all I need to do is just test them in different ways. And it's all it's going to be different is probably the parameters changes, you know, like the dosing will change. But I figured out that each wastewater was so different in its characteristics is that each of these three treatments behaved completely different. Like EC was, electrocoagulation was really good with the canola oil. Whereas when I went to the sugar beet, which is really high in organic loading, I found that the electrooxidation was a better process. It's a slower process, but it's a better process. So my my hypothesis was it's going to be the same three treatments and I'm going to do a comparison study. But by the end of it, I had to do modelings. I had to do statistical analysis to see what are the differences, how how significantly it's different, uh, what are the acting, interacting parameters that are working more in one type of wastewater. So those are the things that actually kind of changed over the course of time. Now that you've gone through the process, if you had the opportunity to do it all over again, what would you have changed? You know, I I was looking into my thesis a few days back and uh, I was I was telling my husband and I was like, you know what, if I would have done this today, I would have probably logged in from a real world perspective where some of the, when we were doing this research in the lab, everything is so controlled. You choose your own parameters. Okay, I'm going to look into the current density. I'm looking into the time. But there are so many other things which now when I go out to the field and see the real life scenarios, I could have incorporated many different things or probably done maybe in terms of like the 
power usage, right? We are using electricity here. So what's the voltage that you would use? What is the current density? Can we can it be optimized into a better level? Uh, how we did uh, energy consumption study in that research, but how well it's going to fit in the today's real world scenario? How, how could we optimize that? Those are the things I think I would go back and revisit. There are a lot of people that listen to this show that are published. Some want to be published. So to do a service to all of them, what tips can you give to the Scaling Up Nation if somebody is trying to publish a paper? So the first thing I would tell, which my advisor told me once, is pick one small problem. You do not have to solve the whole problem. If you just take one bit of one problem, it's going to have a chain reaction in solving the whole problem. Now, once you select that, do as many research because you may not find exactly what you have, what you are going to do because that's what is research about. You are going to do something new, but read a lot of research publications that has been done over the years. What has been done, what has failed, what has not failed, what shows promising, you know, ideas, take those ideas, incorporate in it, make a hypothesis of it. What, what you are expecting, find, find the problem and find what you want to solve about that problem. I think that's the main thing about a research is what you want to solve. It's not only identifying the problem. And from that, give your best in trying to find the supporting research. Supporting research is really important, I would say. And when you are going for towards publication, that means if, if you're ready for publication, that means your research is working. And sometimes it's not only about how successful your project was. A, a publication can also be about what were the failures and what did you learn from your research? That's a great point. I've talked to so many people that uh, we talked about your hypothesis and how it changed along the way when you actually got your observations in. So many people give up when their observations don't match their hypothesis. Yes. And I think that actually happens because you dedicate so much of your hours of your life and then you are so passionate about this. And then when you're thinking it's going to happen and it's not happening, it's demotivating at times. But what you have to learn from here is learn from what has failed, why it has failed. You know, find a reason behind your failure that will lead to your success. That's what I believe in. One of our most used water treatment products here in the Atlanta metropolitan area was a mistake. And we didn't design it for what we use it for now. And if we just threw it away, we would not have realized all the success that we've had with it for years. Yes. You were mentioning about what do we do with how good the water is from this process. So the treated water from this can also be used into your industrial water treatment. In many of the meat and processing industries where they have used, where they're currently using in some of the countries, small scale meat processing industries of food and beverage, some of these facilities use the treated water from electrochemical oxidation into cooling towers and also in cleaning their facilities instead of using raw city water for their you know treatment 
One of the concerns that people have with using reuse water in HVAC systems or even clean in place systems are the bacteria that come in with that. So how do we ensure that we're not introducing something we don't want? So electrochemical peroxidation is very much effective treatment in microbial destruction as well. So there are many researches that has been done that has been proved that it can kill microorganisms. There is the pathogenic microbial growth can be nicely distracted, uh, effectively distracted. And of course, if you're using a process and if you're using it for reusability purposes, you will always go through a disinfection system. If someone wants to get started in wastewater, what advice would you give them? If it's someone from the water industry who has been in the industrial water treatment, I would say these two are very different. And if it's, if it's for a completely new person, what I would say is wastewater is like math. It's like a game. You, you have to really understand and you have to really enjoy doing it. It's a piece of puzzle, I would say. It's, it's to me. You connect the different dots and it's, it's going to bring a beautiful picture to it. Yeah, anybody that's ever done a jar study before, I think it's more luck than science. <laughs> science will get you close, but I can't tell you how many mistakes I've made that have been better than what I calculated. Oh, yes. Yes. But actually, when I say math, um, it's not about the putting in the formulas, but if you're solving a problem, you see it in maths, you see it from different perspectives, right? You use different theorems, you use different uh, correlations. So I see wastewater as the same way. You need to trial and error. You need to play it like a game, you know? I always see many a times when I'm in the field helping our technical representatives, some of them say, hey, I use this much of ferric chloride and it's, it's not working. The important thing is it's not only about the addition of chemicals. We have to understand the characteristic of the wastewater. Just because ferric chloride is working in one thing, it's at, at a certain dosage, it does not mean that we, a different wastewater will work in the same. So we have to look into the pH, the temperature, the characteristic, the composition of the wastewaters, what's where is it coming from? Where is it going? So all of these matters a lot. A lot of times, even a drop of, even if your pH is at the right range, you know, for the chemical coagulation to happen, but sometimes just adding a drop of acid or an alkali, it, it changes very differently because it, sometimes it needs a catalyst to work for. So even if you're in the right range in the pH, maybe it's just adding the catalyst, understanding how it's going to work is very important. What's your strangest wastewater story? Oh, many. <laughs> I, uh, one I would never forget was I was working uh, sometime for agricultural wastewater. So one day I'm going to pick up manure wastewater from a cattle farm, dairy cattle farm. And the wastewater that was there, it was full of cow dung and all the fathers drained through. And I just took one bucket of wastewater to my lab and I was stinking that manure wastewater all my day, 
all my day. I mean, there there have been so many incidents like like that that I, I think I have I have seen the worst in wastewater that nothing yikes me out anymore. <laughs> when I first got started in this industry, my dad took me to a turkey rendering plant. And that was just the worst smell. I can remember the smell for to this day. It sticks to your. It sticks, it sticks to, your to everything. <laughs> oh my goodness! So because of that, I used to because I now had to service it. My dad said, "Now you deal with the stink," <laughs> and I would take a change of clothes. And just sitting in my car, it would get penetrated with that smell. So I oh, then yeah. learned I had to put them in a sealed trash bag. Yes. And I had to go somewhere to take a shower to change. <laughs> Otherwise, I was so offensive to anybody I would come in contact with later that day. They didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> no, that's true. Like the lab that I was working on, the next lab was a plant pathology lab. And uh, they used to think that they were working on the, you know, yikes. UV stuff. But whenever I enter the lab, they will just open the lab and tell me, Swati, can you please close your lab door? <laughs> <laughs> can you put a couple of air fresheners in yeah. there? <laughs> I'm curious, what are some of your favorite wastewater resources? The first one would be the Metcalf and Eddie wastewater treatment book. That's That's like the Bible, I would say of wastewater. That's one book I would advise any and everyone who wants to know about a little bit of wastewater. The second book would be the standard methods of estimation analysis. That's like all the standard procedures for all sorts of chemical analysis you want to do. It's not only related to wastewater, but any kind of chemical analytical test that you want to do, the standard procedures. It's so nicely given that you can just start just by referring to that book from day one. Those are some great resources. I'm curious, knowing all the things you've worked on up to this point, is there something you wish you knew back then that you knew now? Patience. Patience. <laughs> I think that's one great thing that PhD taught me. I, I used to get really overwhelmed over small things and really panic about things before when I joined. But over the time, over the five years of my PhD, patience, due diligence is something that I learned. Is there anything else you want our Scaling Up Nation members to know? Well, do what you, what you know and ask always for help. I, I would say that a lot of times, even me at times, uh, we hesitated asking for help, but we are one nation. So it's not necessary for you to know everything. We are all together in this. So be there for everyone else and also seek help and guidance from everyone else. I love that. And we are the Scaling Up Nation. We are one nation and we're all doing similar work. How cool is that? Yes, absolutely. And I'm so proud to be a part of this industry as a whole because um, not only I enjoy doing what I do and I get to learn so much every single day. It's, it's a new learning opportunity for me every single time. So I just cannot be happy enough to be in this industry. 
Well, let's unpack that a little bit because we're all experiencing a work shortage. It's hard to find new people and the people we do find are not familiar with this industry. So what can you say to sell to the people that are out there that this is a great industry to be in? Well, we need water every day. That's the basic, I think, need so to protect the water, to save the world. It's, I think we are, in a way, the superheroes because the basic need of human life is water. So I think that's the best selling point that I can give to anyone is like, you are a superhero if you're working in this industry. Enough said. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And I, if I'm, is it okay for us to put your thesis on our show notes page? Yes, absolutely. We yes. will make sure to have that. So lots of people driving today, they have their hands at 10 and 2. So I'm sure yes. they want to take some more notes. They can do that in the comfort of their own home. Yes, absolutely. And also, uh, there is a scholar scholar.google.com. They have, I have my profile up there where I have my publications. So if, if they want to go and refer to those, I have about eight different publications so if they want to read more about it, they are feel free to either contact me or look into those resources. We'll make sure to put ways to contact you on those show notes page. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Trace. Once again, Swati, thanks so much for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And Nation, I know that there is so much content out there in the Scaling Up Nation. We just need to encourage it to come out. And you might have some information, but maybe you're a little intimidated to write a technical paper. I'm hoping that this interview has given you some confidence and some tips and maybe some starting points where you can start to write your own technical paper. And if you'd like to read Swati's paper, we are going to have that on our show notes page for this episode. So just go to scalinguph2o.com and we will have that available for you. And you can read exactly what we were talking about here. Now, all of the conferences that we mention on the Scaling Up H2O podcast, they are all looking for speakers to talk about content that helps their audience learn more about whatever it is that they are trying to form around at their conference. So maybe you have the next technical paper that can be presented at the International Water Conference. Maybe you have the next technical paper that can be presented at the Association of Water Technologies Conference. Maybe there's another conference that fits you better, but the entire point is, is that you have that information and trust me, the world wants you to give that information up. Share that with the community. If you choose to do that, so many things will happen. For others, you are now exciting others to learn new things. You're challenging the way they might have thought about something. You're making them better at what they do day to day because of those things. 
now for you. And I will tell you, this is the reason that I started this podcast, because whenever I have to talk about something, whenever I have to write about something, whenever I have to teach something, I need to learn more about it. Now, I know a little bit already, but now I have to anticipate what people want to know. I have to look at different ways of how to explain something I might have already known, and now through that, I learn it better. I solidify things that I already knew and I learn new things that I didn't know and that excites me. I've said many times on this podcast that one of my mentors, Tim Fulton, he gave me a phrase well over a decade ago that how do you know the things that you don't know? And that phrase has just consumed me with how do I know what I don't know? And then once I know it, I can figure out how to go learn it. And that's why I put myself in masterminds. That's why I go to conferences. That's why I try to read all the content and technical papers that I can, because I want to learn the things that I didn't know I didn't know. And I hope that motivates you as well. But there are things out there that we all know. And when we decide to share those with others, that allows us to know them even better. And our mission here is to improve the water treatment community, to raise the bar in the water treatment industry, one water treater at a time. And if you can share something with the Scaling Up Nation or something with the audience at whatever convention that you go to, you are helping that mission. And there's a ripple effect that happens. Like when you throw a pebble into a body of water, you see the ripples go out, but you have no idea what they're eventually going to reach. And that's what you're doing when you're putting that content out into the world. I hope this episode inspired you to do that. And I hope this episode inspired you to learn more about all of the fascinating things that Swati was talking about and how she put all of her data together. And if again, if you want to read her paper, we're going to have all of that on ScalingUpH2O.com. Nation, if you have an idea for a show or if you have someone that you want us to interview, go to ScalingUpH2O.com, go over to our show ideas page, and we will make sure that we get that on our list. And that will ensure the entire Scaling Up Nation that we have a podcast for years to come. And for all those people that I am getting ready to meet at the International Water Conference, I cannot wait to see you next week. And for those people that aren't going to be there, know that I'm thinking of you and you'll be able to hear me on Friday with a brand new episode. So until then, have a great week, folks. Do you wish you had your own private tutor to help you study for the Certified Water Technologist examination? Well, now you do. So many of you have asked me to help you with the mock CWT examination, and I've done that very thing. If you go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep, 
Again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. You will see that I've created a course and I tell you everything I know about each one of those mock questions. It's my hope that that helps give you the confidence you need to sign up to get certified today.